0: So again, in in five words or less.
1: Did you say five words or less?
0: I did. You know, and I I got. I'm a
1: long form writer and I write books.
0: I was going to say, like, what if I'm your editor? Give me a thousand words on this, like 20,000 words later. Yeah, here you go. This is why I
1: hate Twitter. I mean, I can't. (laughs) Good evening, everyone.
2: Welcome to Sport Talks with Sport Profs. I'm Prof Joe. Prof Walls um, is normally here is not able to be here tonight and the coach Dan Berlin is here as well. But tonight's guest is Dan Robson, who is one of our own is one of the part time faculty here in sport media, but is also the head of features and the senior writer for the athletic Canada. He's an award winning journalist and best selling author of several books. Such as his next one, which is called Measuring Up, a memoir of fathers and sons, which I just saw you post on social media today about the uh, publication in May. But you're also the author of um, quite a few other books, the national bestseller, Quinn, The Life of a Hockey Legend, which was long listed for the 2017 RBC Taylor Prize for literary nonfiction. You're also the co-author of The Crazy Game with Clint Malachuk, Change Up with Buck Martinez, and Killer with Doug Gilmore, all of which were bestsellers. You were also a Senior Writer at Sportsnet Magazine and Sportsnet.ca. You won a newspaper reporter sport journalism award this past year. You and your wife just had a baby in COVID times. We might get to talk about that later. And your beginnings were a Bachelor's in English and Education at Queen's University and a Master's in Journalism at Carleton University. I remember when we first met that was something that uh, intrigued me. I'd like to start there. When the sport media program started, I was a big fan of your writing and we had not met. I did not know you. And I reached out to you to see if you were actually interested in ever teaching. And then, do you remember that conversation? That's when you actually told me, what was your original plan and how did the plan change?
1: Yeah, so when I was at Queens actually, right from my freshman year, I was um, enrolled in a program called Concurrent Education. and. Uh, my goal was to become a high school teacher. So I trained through my major English and my minor history and taught for um, the programs a five year program. So I, every year as part of my regular curriculum, we did an educational component, so I was in schools, teaching and learning about education, pedagogy, and, and all that kind of fun stuff. And I really enjoyed it. I actually had a chance to uh, teach overseas in Ireland at an at-risk school as part of the program. Uh, I went to Guyana and worked with Amerindian communities there, talking about approaches to, to education. Um, so that was a fantastic opportunity early on in, in my sort of academic career. But during that time, I had the opportunity to stop um, when I finished playing hockey, which is a, I did for the Queens Golden Gales. I was a, a member of the hockey team for a while. When I, I stopped partway through my, my undergrad and started working for the student newspaper. And that's sort of where my desire to actually pursue a career as a as a writer, as a journalist began.
2: And then that evolved into all these different newsrooms that you worked in, like the CBC, Sportsnet, now The Athletic. I wanna touch on and start with talking about one of your recent articles for The Athletic. You actually were on paternity leave for the fall. um, And when you've Mm. come back to work, one of the articles now that uh, has gotten a lot of attention is one about toxic culture in hockey. So that's where I wanna start with. Um, because uh, we had a very good conversation about it last week. So I'd like to let a few other people, now they're listening, in on that. So what was the genesis
1: for that idea, for you to want to write an article about that? Yeah, I started writing that article actually last June, um, when I was still working at The Athletic during that shutdown of the NHL season, when everything was kind of um, was stopped but so many issues within sport were being discussed partly because of what was happening in society at large also specifically within hockey um, last year was and a period where a lot of issues that have been bubbling beneath the surface for a long time came to the surface and um, were finally discussed like racism in sport and misogyny and, and all of these issues that were making headlines for me it was Uh, a period of reflection because, as I mentioned, my background in athletics, um, playing varsity level hockey in university and playing junior hockey uh, before that, even though I'm quite far removed from those days now, I felt a lot of, or I sensed a lot of familiarity. A lot of the discussion that was coming up was stuff that I felt I recognized to a certain extent, Not, not completely, but to a certain extent, enough that I could understand the the culture within which these sort of behaviors persist and in which well-meaning people end up being a party to allowing for these terrible things to happen or or just this unwelcoming behavior to continue so i i just felt that it was time for me to sort of tell a little bit about my own story um and to do a lot of reporting on what this issue is and see if i can put a thumb on it Um, it was a difficult thing to do because it's a hard concept to tackle and it's hard to take a look at a culture. It's a sort of a, a thing that's hard to sort of say, this is exactly what this is. Um, so by diving into my own experiences, I think that I was able to sort of create a framework by which I could then um, sort of dissect what uh, I think is at the root of all of these issues we're seeing within hockey specifically.
2: Did you have any kind of pushback from The Athletic, the editorial above you or anything about pursuing this kind of line of, uh, of an article? and taking this kind of a stand?
1: No, The Athletic's all for it. I mean, my last year I spent most of my time actually reporting on the Hockey Diversity Alliance. It started with a story, a big feature I wrote about about Akimalu back in December after he'd um, come forward with his allegations of racist behavior that he faced throughout his his professional career. And The Athletic and as, as an institution is very focused on covering obviously the X's and O's of the game, I, I think, as well or better than anyone else, but at the same time looking at these issues and not shying uh, away from them. So uh, when I brought the idea up to my uh, my editors that, that greenlight the stories that I'm working on or that I discuss the stories I'm working on with, they said, ad, yeah, like dive into it right away. Um, I think given my ability or my experience as a journalist and having this sort of crossover, uh, having been somebody who grew up in the game, um, I, I had, I mean, I think many people have that vantage point, but I think I was able to provide a lens to it that, I wouldn't have been able to do, or I might not have been able to do as well, um, had I not spent so much time, you know, behind those uh, closed doors and locker rooms.
2: I, I agree, and um, you know, I'm a big fan of the article. But playing devil's advocate, a lot of people will say, you know, the role of a journalist is you're supposed to report on things and not supposed to put yourself in the story, right? And so, what do you say to
1: that? Uh, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I think that there is value when you're doing something thoughtfully and carefully and not just sort of throwing out my sort of unconsidered opinion on something. I mean, I'm not not—I'm not a columnist. I, I am a feature writer by virtue of every pretty much every other story that I wrote, which requires intensive reporting and intensive discussion with other people and reflection and, and making sure that the story is as fair and, um, and accurate as it can be before we present it. Um, in this case, I kind of treat myself as a source, to be honest. I mean, I, I take my own experience and It it is a step out for me when it comes to the work that I do as a journalist. It's not something I do all the time. But when I do it, I want to be extra careful with how I do it and and make sure that I'm sort of evaluating my own biases and sort of interrogating myself in a way in terms of what I'm presenting. So I sort of did my best to present this as analysis as opposed to, you know, straight journalism uh, feature storytelling, uh, which I do think there's a distinction of. Um, and in the headline, actually, or in the uh, URL, that sort of says Robson. I mean, it's, it's clear that this is a piece that relies on personal experience. And I, I think that that distinction is important to make whenever uh, a journalist is, is approaching something in this way.
2: You've mentioned about uh, covering some of the other stories that were highlighting this in, in the hockey world earlier on. How important is it for all these athletes to actually start you know, coming forward, coming out about all of this? Does that make it easier for you then to tell your own story? And does it, in effect, make
1: it easier for every person than going forward to tell their own stories? I think that for me to tell my story is relatively easy. I mean, I don't have very much to lose, frankly. So I do understand that I think it might be more difficult for a player who's still playing in the game, for example, in the NHL or in junior hockey to take a stand. I wrote about Eric Guest, who's um, a former OHL player who um, started revealing um, experiences he had had uh, that were quite toxic and outright illegal in some places, like quite, um, quite terrible. Well, he played for the Kitchener Rangers. Um, and he took a stand at the time and he right out of the game right now, using his, his platform that's so connected to it still to voice his opinion. I, mean, I think he has a lot more to lose than someone like me who is, is just writing about this a uh, decade later. So I think that for me using my platform as a writer, it's something that I felt I had an opportunity to contribute to this conversation in that sense. But in terms of your question, Joe, about how important it's for players to start being part of this conversation and, and leading this conversation, I think it's imperative. I mean, I think the game doesn't change till the people that are at the very core of it are willing to think critically and honestly about it um, without saying it's a terrible thing in general and it's this horrible sport that ruins people's lives. I mean, that's not what is being said at all, but to to be willing to look critically at the world in which you've been able to excel and to think about who hasn't been able to excel in that sport, who's been excluded, or who's been directly targeted through bullying or through misogynistic behavior or racism or homophobic behavior. I mean, these are honest conversations that anybody who claims to love the game needs to be willing to have. Otherwise, the game is going to continue to deal with these issues and continue to come under this critical spotlight and continue to uh, be questioned. And, and you'll see less and less people playing it and, and all these things will happen. It needs to change, not only because it should and it's right, but also because uh, the future of the game itself, I think depends on it.
2: Yeah, and the thing is with you know high profile people and speaking out, high profile athletes speaking out and then high profile coaches maybe being fired and other people at, in higher positions of power, that helps. But then don't you also think that because you you're just like everyone else playing hockey, you all start at a junior level, you start at a recreational level. And is that where really some of the focus into diversity training and inclusion needs to start? Because if it doesn't start at the grassroots level, it's only going to continue to get worse as you go up through the elite levels, the semi pro, the pro, and you just keep getting it just sort of keeps magnifying. So don't you have to kind of cut it off at the beginning if it's dealt with there? You as a player yourself, when you started playing, was diversity or inclusion ever talked about?
1: Uh, No, it wasn't discussed at all. Um, And I I think that that's one of the things that I'm hopeful for Um, in in doing this article and, and doing research on it. Every league is talking about the programs that they're going to be implementing now, the Uh, training about diversity and inclusion, training about bullying, training for their coaches to be able to monitor toxic behavior in the game. How uh, effective that is remains to be seen. I mean, I think it's been something that's been talked about for at least a decade. So it's not necessarily, it's hard to measure, I guess, exactly how successful that is. And you you can only hope that um, the teeth within the way that these programs are enforced and, and the way that bodies at the grassroots level are are enforcing them are uh, effective enough to actually make sure that change happens. I think it's difficult to hold um, adolescents. you know, I think adolescents need to be held accountable for their behavior, but um, it, it starts with the leadership. It starts with the parents. It starts with uh, the coaches in the locker room uh, that these are children really whose worldview is still being formed and still being all their biases are still coming out in that level. And I think that we need to protect locker rooms and, and the game itself for young people at all levels by having better leadership um, in the coaching ranks and the management ranks and and in the stands uh, from parents who want to have their kids included in this game. So it's a difficult problem to fix. And I think that's why when I write an article like this, it gets so much pushback because there's not like a checklist where I can say, do this, do this, this, and it will be fixed. We will do all those things all these leagues do all those things. And we'll talk about those things, but it's not necessarily going to be fixed because the game itself is so rooted In these um, behaviors and these ideas of who was a hockey player, who gets to play and in issues of who has access to the game, who, who can pay to play the game, who sees themselves reflected in the game. All of these things are so deeply rooted in hockey that it's going to take years to untangle all of that. So, Joe, I think I think it starts in terms of people with influence at the top, having real honest conversations and calling for change. And that influence needs to continue to impact people at all levels of the game. And the conversation needs to not be, oh, well, that was an exclusive situation that happened in that team over in that town with that coach. What needs to happen is coaches and and managers and and players need to think about how they are impacting or comforting or or allowing this culture to incubate and continue, even though they're well-meaning and don't realize it. And I think until we do that, um, these problems are gonna persist.
2: I wanna move on to the next section about something that we talked about last week about the idea of allyship. And that that's what your article really was speaking to me in volumes about was that you were recognizing your own white privilege, your own privilege when you played hockey. Mm-hmm. And when you were going back and sort of this looking back reflection, you could see that you had that privilege and almost didn't realize it, didn't know it at the time. Mm -hmm. And you would see that the same privilege that was afforded you was not necessarily afforded to other people. So as you had to do Mm -hmm. this kind of hard reflection looking back, how did that make you feel about your days as a junior player and coming up through the ranks and and the things uh, that you might have seen and now you might have thought differently about
1: Yeah, I mean, it it certainly made me feel uncomfortable and um, have a sense of shame about it. I mean, I I don't think there's any way around that. You know, my experiences after I was a teenager, going off to university and then working in journalism and now working in in education at at Ryerson and being able to write about these issues has obviously opened my eyes and my perspective and given me a different worldview than I had uh, when I was younger. And, And it's not necessarily that I had, you know, negative thoughts towards, you know, people who weren't white or who were homosexual or all these things at that time. But what I didn't think about was the fact that everybody in the locker room looked exactly like me and came from homes quite similar to me, talked the same way I did and espoused this sort of um, idea of what a hockey player was. Uh, and we all fit into that into that mold. And, and I, I said in the article, I mean, I grew up in Brampton, which is one of the most diverse hockey or diverse cities in, in Canada. It's a beautiful place um, that I'm so proud to be from. But in, in my entire hockey life, from the age of six years old till, till I left when I was uh, 19, I can count the number of people of color on my hockey teams in one hand, and I had no coaches who weren't white or male. And at the time, I wasn't equipped to think critically about that. So when I look back on it with shame now, I mean, I, I, I do think that this is what I was trying to get at earlier, that part of the problem is that you know, the youth are still youth, they're still growing. they're still trying to figure out um, the world and what's happening. And I think obviously there's some kids who can who should be calling for you know leaders that can be changing things. But at that time, I was just so focused on on trying to play this game that was really tough and that I felt a lot of pressure for and put a lot of pressure on myself for. And I was completely caught up in that world. I didn't think about who didn't get a chance to play the game that I did. So yeah, I mean, it, it's when I look back on it now it makes me sad. I mean, it makes me sad that some of my friends who aren't white, who I grew up with, didn't think that hockey um, was something for them in the way that it was able to be for me. And it gave me so much. And I also you know, wanted to get on that. If this article I wrote about, um, I gained so much from the sport. I mean, it's a sport that I love. I, I still write about it today. I think that so much, so many of the life lessons I've carried forward came from learning how to play that game at, at a high level. And I, I'm passionate about it, which is why uh, I'm so passionate about saying we need to change these things because it, it's heartbreaking that, somebody you know that grew up on the same street as me didn't have the same opportunities to experience the game the game I did because the simple thing to say is oh of course they had it could have shut the trials they could have done all this stuff but it's about who's encouraged to be there it's about who do you see on the coach's bench or in the stands it's about what that environment is like if you're not welcome there just by the way that it, it looks or sounds or the, what people are saying in that locker room which speaks to the rapid homophobia that was something that um, you know I'm, I'm deeply ashamed about but that was just part of this culture and misogyny um, that was that was constant I mean if that you know if I, I didn't recognize how hurtful or how isolating those behaviors were and so now um, I'm hopeful that you know this younger generation that is playing and the coaches that are there are aware of this stuff and, and it is being discussed and it is changing
2: We have a couple of questions out there. So first, I'm going to call on Ben. Uh, He's got a question for you. And then Jess. Hi, Ben. Nice to see you again. My question is a bit more from the writing side. And uh, I know you probably got a bit of pushback. I didn't scroll down into the comments on The Athletic or on Twitter. um, But I'm just wondering how you, as the writer, after telling this story, uh, deal with some of the pushback that comes from negative comments if people say, not in my game or something like that.
1: Thanks for the question, Ben. It's a good one. I mean, because those comments were, uh, if you go down, I mean, I, I tweeted about it and and I, look, everyone who comments at The Athletic is, you know, they've come and, and they're they've paid to be there. They're, I'm grateful that they've read this story and that they're engaging in some way. Some of the comments, I think, uh, were just silly and destructive and I'm not even going to engage in that. I mean, that's just, uh, as a journalist, you learn very quickly that there's going to be, pretty much with anything you write, there's going to be some sort of trolling that happens. And I think some of that goes to that. I, but I'm more interested in the questions that were more well-considered and were trying to sort of make an argument about, you know, the benefits of the game, like you're saying, or that this is, these are isolated incidents and that the whole game is being painted with this broad brush and it's not fair and, it, and it's wrong and, and it's sort of, you know, it's cancel culture and all the things. But I think in a way that would engage with me. So, I mean, I tried to respond to those questions in a way that I would with anybody else and if I was sitting in a bar or in a library or at school, just having a conversation. I think when you have conversations with people in a respectful way, wherever you are, it always tends to at least find to create some common ground as opposed to division. So, I mean, that's my starting point. I'm also just very confident that I'm right about this. So I'm not not sort of thinking, oh, no, what if I'm not fair if I'm wrong? And I've thought about this for years. I've lived this game. My entire life, I've written about it. I, I've talked to experts about it from all levels, from hockey players to academics, you know, to people working at the grassroots level. And I, I know this is a problem. And so my approach is to not be condescending or to go out there and try and look to be combative. It's to just try and say, well, have you thought about this or what about this? Or here's what I'm exactly trying Here's what I'm trying to say. Because if I said something that is misinterpreted, then obviously as a journalist, I want to clarify that as well. I mean, that's something that I um, can happen very easily, or someone can read a headline and not really get to the depth of it. And that's a 3,000-word article. I'm asking a lot of a reader to come and spend time looking at an argument that I think is actually quite nuanced. It isn't just sort of a hockey bad, let's throw it away discussion. It's dealing with different perspectives, it's dealing with different uh, points and and whenever someone's willing to engage in those uh, points and have a real conversation with me, I'm, I'm here to have it.
3: Um, I have a couple of questions, but I'm gonna ask the second one because I think the first one is a little, long. The second one that I have is, how do you think that sport and writing are interrelated to be platforms for advocacy? And w- why do you think that both as athletes and as journalists, we have an important role to be advocates for different
1: topics? It's a great question. I mean, I, I think the main, the, the first thing that comes to mind is that the platform is enormous, and then there is no separating um, social issues from sport. There never has been, and that's not, Something that has ever existed. I mean, the history of sport is tied to literal history and social movements and things that are happening in society. I mean, there's just so many areas in which those those intersections happen that I think we're being incredibly naive to suggest for for anyone to suggest otherwise. I mean, I just think that argument falls apart so quickly, and um, it's it's one that you know you hear a lot on Twitter and stuff like that stick to sports and all that kind of stuff. but, I mean, it's just, it's a nonsensical point. I've never seen somebody make that argument in a way that is compelling. So I think that by virtue of of the industry, it's tied to these issues. Now, um, when it comes to athletes, um, I mean, I think the thing about athletes is that these are people with enormous followings, enormous respect, enormous influence on society. And so I think that it's um, I wouldn't say that it's incumbent on every single athlete to be an activist or to go out and stand up and, and make statements. I mean, I, I think that's somewhat unfair as well, but I do think that when they do, people listen. And so if somebody is feels passionately about something or is, has suffered injustice and feels compelled to, to be a voice in a movement, um, you just see how the impact that somebody with a platform, you know, like LeBron James or someone has, I mean, it's you know, and even somebody who's an Olympic athlete, someone who's not quite as you know, globally famous, but just nationally famous or locally famous, people listen because of, you know, athletes have earned a certain level of respect through the work that they put in, through through everything that they've done, and, and they've got people paying attention. So when athletes do use their voice, it's powerful. And so I think that's right. why um, we see it so often. For journalists, I think my point would go back to what I said earlier, it, our, as covering this industry, covering sport requires that you cover it honestly and cover it from all areas so some journalists are very good at covering analytics and like I think that's their expertise and that's totally fine but there needs to be um, some discussion within any sports sort of ecosystem of journalism about what social issues are at play I can only speak right now for for the athletic and I I previously worked at sports that um and I I think both places do a good job of of balancing both and recognizing um that these are conversations that people want to have and need to have and, and again, in that the same way, I wouldn't say that every single athlete needs to have an opinion about every single social issue and, and should be well spoken about it and should be judged if they're not. I, I also don't think that every sports journalist needs to be writing every second piece about social issues. I mean, I think that we all have different jobs and different roles to play. I, I'm grateful that I have a platform and an opportunity to write about the things that I'm passionate about and to explore these issues. Um, and, and so I, I just feel lucky to be able to, to do that.
2: I have one more question then I'm going to be tossing it to uh, to Dan Berlin but just to follow up on that what do you then say to the people that uh, again like the trolls and the and the bullying that happen online to you with this is and you see it where it's like don't give me this about the toxic culture these kinds of issue pieces this is not why I read the athletic I'm going to you know cancel my subscription I'm going to do this I'm going to do that I don't want this I don't need this and so this debate goes back and forth all along on the comments section. So what do you say to that?
1: I mean, in terms of the, the threats to cancel a subscription, I mean, I I don't care, <laughs> like fine, if you wanna cancel your subscription, um, you know, the company is doing very well and it worked very hard. And, and I think the company would back me up on that. I mean, we respect all of our, and we're grateful for all the people who subscribe. I mean, we're, one thing that's different for us, I should reiterate, is that we are entirely subscription based. We don't have any ads on our website. And so we are driven by our readership. But the reality is the metrics show that people do care. You know, the metrics show that people want to be part of this conversation. And the fact that you clicked on this story and went all the way down to make a comment about it suggests that you are engaged in this conversation, whether or not you agree with the take that was given, you are engaged with it in some way, you could easily have ignored that, that story. And so the thing about those comments is that, that I find the most comical generally is that you know, everyone's saying that they're so sick of these stories, take the time to comment on these stories. So there's a real irony to that. And I, I'm, I'm actually quite encouraged by it. I think maybe people are uh, are more interested than we think. And maybe people are, I think everyone's, I hope that that everyone is is capable of changing their mind or at least reconsidering their opinion. So that's where I, I come from when it comes to the comments. I, I feel like it's my opportunity to, to extend what I've reported on and what I've learned and continue my article to a certain extent and, and to engage in you know, even in in comments that I think are designed to be destructive, I can try and create a constructive conversation about it. I'm not really bothered by it. And I think that's probably just years of getting a thick skin of people telling you you're terrible and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I I think it's just, especially now in the last like five years, conversations go to their most acute points very quickly. You, You have to be willing, you have to understand that that's not really where the conversation is living. It's not living sort of in this sort of extreme level of like, this is all crap and like how, carry, how can you write about this and you know you just cancel culture all this stuff and it's not necessarily living in we need to change the game completely it's actually probably the, the real conversation is probably happening at the level of a coach just thinking you know what even though I've, I've gone to these seminars and I'm doing my best maybe I'm not paying enough attention in my locker room about who's feeling excluded or maybe I'm not looking around my locker room and recognizing who's not there and, and I think that those are the important more important conversations than the ones that are just sort of loud and
0: abrasive.
2: Before I even go to Dan again, Axel had a comment there about cancel culture. Do you want to bring that up, Axel?
0: Just, just a question on cancel culture. And sometimes it's provoked, sometimes it's unprovoked. But in generally speaking, do you think cancel culture has brought much into transparency and accountability to the digital stage, or do you think it's introduced a whole um, other layer of toxicity that wasn't there before? Um, it seems yeah. a little unbridled sometimes.
1: So I mean, I, I think that. It, I don't want to back out with a nuanced answer on this, but I think it's important to think about it. I think that to think about it in several ways. I mean, cancel culture, the idea of of calling out people who have, who frankly deserve to be called out. I, I think that that has is beneficial to some extent. I mean, I think that we've seen things that wouldn't have come to light come to light and, and it's created an uncomfortable reality for people who have lived in comfort and who have been able to perpetuate uh, bullying and other behaviors um, at the same time. I think that when you go so far as to say, you know, we're not, you're, you're now completely out of this conversation for good and we're, you're, we're done with you. You know, I think it creates a great deal of concern about how we have conversations. I think people are afraid to have conversations. I think people sometimes on, on Twitter and other public places are not sure about how to talk about things that they're not experts in. And and I think, I think that perhaps the temperature needs to down a little bit at the same time that I do think that, you know, people that are in positions of power who have been able to perpetuate negative behaviors um, should be called out and and should be held accountable. So I I think it's a bit of two things. I mean, I I just think we need to, in all of our conversations with people, and this goes back to what I think I was saying in the last question. I mean, I think that we have to hold ourselves accountable to how uh, we're engaging with people. And and when we're having these conversations with people, which happen in a digital space, on Twitter or on Facebook or other forums, you know, there's no face to face, there's no personal connection. It's not like sitting down with somebody and having a beer. And generally when you're doing that, conversations tend to find more of a common ground. And so I think that that I'm hopeful and, and maybe it sounds wishy-washy, but I really am hopeful that in the way that we engage with people who disagree with us or are sort of being you know, toxic to a certain extent, we can encourage more movement in the conversation as opposed to just saying, you're horrible, I'm blocking you, I'm not talking to you, or you're canceled for good and you're no longer part of this conversation and you're gone. So it's it's a fine balance, I think, and, and it's one that I think we obviously need, need to keep working out.
0: Yeah, appreciate that, Dan. And uh, just to jump in here, uh, obviously great to connect with you and uh, thank you for all of your points of view so far. Just decided to pivot and switch focus a little bit toward the representation of women in sports, mm-hmm. um, just off the top to get your take on women as it relates to, you know, generally having a harder time breaking in. You speak about sort of the hierarchy mm-hmm. and those at the top and the gatekeepers being that it's predominantly male dominated. How, how do you perceive the industry and the work environment and as it relates and to, to women working in media? And how, how do you think that it is now and where do you think it can go and can improve?
1: It's a great question. Um, you know, I, it's one that I think all companies that work in sports media are should be grappling with and, and the one I know that I work for has been grappling with very seriously and I know uh, Sportsnet did as well when I was there. I think it's something that we take very seriously. Um, part of the issue is that we have this industry that has been dominated by white men for so long and co- continues to be. Um, and, and I think we were operating in um, a time when we didn't think, we didn't realize how exclusive that, how exclusionary that was, how we were blocking people out from being a part of these things. And, and, and to the detriment of the way that we cover sports. I think that now at leadership levels, that conversation is definitely changing. And there's definitely a desire to have more uh, diversity in the voices that are working for us or that are in, in all areas of sport media, because it's the right thing to do, but also because it benefits the product that we're producing to have a different perspective. So, from an editorial standpoint, which is all of my work has been on in terms of creating content, we are. I, I do think we're we're seeing a more of a purposeful approach to it's trying to encourage young journalists, their young content producers, whether they're in um, you know broadcast or in, in in writing and everything else, to be excited about becoming sports journalists and have those opportunities. But then also. Um, to make sure that we're we're doing a better job in our in our hiring when we're doing that. It also comes down to how we're telling stories and, and the stories that we're telling. So, I mean, it also reflects not just in who's being hired and who's how we're taking care of um, making sure that we have more diversity in our newsrooms, but also in how we approach women's sports in general, how we write about these things, how we think about the industry at large. And I think it's an ongoing conversation that we're still a long way from getting to where we need to be. Uh, but I've seen... You know, I, I've seen just the, just from my own colleagues, the, the incredible work of journalists that are women that have brought their remarkable perspectives to storytelling. I just, I just think about you know, people that I've worked with and you know, I, thankfully they are part of our team and always were, but to think that maybe years ago they might not have been there, it makes me really sad. So I hope that we continue to see those changes.
0: Yeah, and Dan, I, I mean, I really appreciate that stance. These are, these are difficult questions to ask. You sort of alluded to where you are now at The Athletic and previously at Sportsnet is, you know, these conversations are real and are happening now. Can you sort of give us as your audience just some insight to what depths these conversations are happening at and what the the temperature in the room is like as it relates to finding ways to include women in the conversation and roles and and, in fair Mm -hmm. coverage?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can speak to one, I know in particularly with us at The Athletic, there's through our Slack channels and everything, there's an, a group dedicated to, to women finding support in, in an environment that is frankly outside, incredibly toxic. So just being able to find comfort in their own colleagues and be able to talk about these issues. And it's not just women in that conversation, there's men as well and being able to, it's men being able to go in and talk about stories that they're doing and being able to have these kinds of conversations. So I think that being aware of how not just sort of hiring people and saying, okay, we're done. Now we've got this X number of women in different different positions in the company, but also recognizing that, that this industry itself is rampant and built on toxic masculinity um, and, and that our colleagues are going to be targeted in a way that I wouldn't be targeted uh, and are constantly targeted in a way that I wouldn't be targeted. We saw this happen um, earlier this year with my colleague, Haley Selvian, who, and I don't want to speak for her, but an incredible young, um, reporter just doing a great job out of Ottawa, who, who wrote a tweet that there's someone had been targeting her on Twitter, and a shock jock radio host, uh, Dean Blundell, decided to make an example of her taking issue with that and making a big issue of it, and it was it was just this really sad thing to watch. But behind the scenes, I mean, I know all of uh, Haley's colleagues. I, I watched this sort of happen in our Slack and online, and it came to her defense in a, in a in a way that I thought was um, I was just was moving to see, um, to see people to to stand beside her and say, this is, this we're not going to be this behavior anymore. And and so I think that that's one of the ways we're doing it. And it's not, I I can't, you know, I I think it's not just about hiring. I mean, that's something that's at a level that I'm not, that's way above me and that I can't do, but I know the conversation amongst journalists, amongst editors um, is about being more aware of how people are being affected and targeted. And, And again, not just in a way where it's like, well, I'm not doing anything. I'm not targeting anybody. Therefore, it's okay. But, you know, we have, you know, we, we just have this issue, the story coming out about, um, you know, this, this unnamed journalist being targeted by the Mets general manager and and, and sexually harassed and, and, um, you know, and, and stalked basically online in this horrible way. Um, and, and that that's that kind of story, you know, what was heartbreaking about that was the number of stories that then came and a couple of my colleagues wrote about this about similar incidents that have occurred and that's the kind of stuff that you know I think in the past has sort of been swept under the rug or there hasn't been a place where people felt safe talking about it and those conversations are coming out and I think even within the industry there's there's more support and awareness of those and I think that um, is the beginning of something that we need to continue to to do.
0: You know, you paid a nice compliment right off the top there when I asked you that first question, because you said it was a great question, and I guess, you know, I can't take credit for it, I got to give attribution to our friend uh, and producer Chelsea Vernout, who's such a big part of this show, she has a a question for you, so without me stealing any more of her thunder, Chelsea, come on in.
3: Well, thanks for the introduction, uh, Coach. And uh, thank you for being on the show, Dan. Um, so I'm a very big believer in the fact that visibility is key. And I think media plays one of the most crucial parts in sport because you guys have the the voice and you have uh, the insight. And I think that in order to get um, women's sports and female athletes and other diverse uh, realms out there in the open where we can normalize, I think that it's right in your hands. Um, my question is that there is a great focus on women's sports and female athletes specifically, but what about women working in sports? So do you think that the media covers their stories enough to educate society on the workplace conditions women face, or are they just as mute as the rest?
1: Yeah, Great question. and my, my apologies, Chelsea. Um, I think that's a very good question. I don't think we're necessarily doing a good enough job of, of writing about I mean, I'm thinking specifically about sport media in general. I don't know if that we're doing a good enough job about writing about the barriers that women face in sport. I think we often see stories um, about the first coach or the first assistant general manager or these different positions that tend to be congratulatory as opposed to looking more critically at why it's taken so long for those positions to be given to, to women or for women to have opportunities in those positions. So I, I think that we do need to do a much better job at thinking critically about the industry as a whole and, and writing stories that question the biases and, and and the established sort of structure within which we're hiring people for different positions and, and who we're looking to and who we're encouraging to take those positions. So um, I think there's a lot of stories to be told there. Um, also, we're starting to see stories about, you know, workplace environments that, um, are, are just outright toxic towards uh, women. And, and, and those are important stories to come out, but they can't just be stories that come out and then we forget about them and stop talking about them. And they're sort of outliers to the whole industry at large. We have to start writing about how the industry itself has allowed these behaviors to persist. And it's not just that, um, you know, it's happening in one team or one organization or one network. It's the industry itself that has something wrong with it, that needs to look inwardly and be thinking about um, how it can change. And I think more uh, reporting on that area is much needed.
0: It, you know, Dan, just to interject here, cause I, you're not getting any softballs today. You're just, there's nothing, but these are like 92 mile an hour sliders coming at you hot, you know, fast and furious. So I just want to give you credit for how incredibly well you're handling these questions. But just, just to kind of interject, you know, so much of this debate I feel has always hinged on, you know, is there a situation where we can take you know, this leadership, these gatekeepers, this toxic masculinity, this old school approach and can we change it? And I would just argue that something that I feel both passionate and, and very positive about is even if you look at what this pandemic can and will spawn it's spawning new change and new methods and new technology and you know new platforms so in the past if i was a you know if i wanted to make it in this industry i had a choice of maybe four or five places where i could go and try to infiltrate knowing that it was almost impossible to crack now there's this idea that we may be in a situation no matter what sport we play no matter how underrepresented we may have been in the past, that we don't necessarily have to rely on an old gatekeeper to give us the credence or to give us the permission that we belong and that we have a voice and that we can do what we are destined to do. And I think that's what's so exciting. And we see it like there's a a spawn that came out, the GIST, and I'm sure many of you have heard of it. And they're just like, hey, we have an idea, we wanna do something, let's create something for ourselves. And with emerging technology, I think part of it too is, listen, we can all do a job to be better and to promote change and to be more enlightened without question, but with this new technology that's coming out and this new opportunity to, for everybody to say, hey, I haven't had a place to be heard before, I can create my own place, I can build my own audience and, and I'm just thinking from women's hockey to, to steal an example, do I need mm-hmm. Gary Bettman's permission or acknowledgement or acceptance for women's hockey to potentially grow?
1: I mean, I think it's that's 100% true. I mean, you, you just, in terms of the ability for people to create their own platforms and to grow followings and to be a voice that people are listening to. The, the problem continues to be how you monetize that and how you make a living off of that, how you pay, for example, with women's hockey, how you pay players uh, properly in a way that they they need to be able to be paid to give everything they can to this game. So, I mean, I think that the issue still is that, although there's the idea that there aren't gatekeepers, there still are in terms of how people making a living doing this. And we do, there are obviously incredible examples of grassroots uh, or, or new um, entrepreneurial approaches to, Creating your own voice, being you know having a great thing on Twitter, you doing YouTube and having your own podcast, creating your own website—these um, are all great things. Um, but I think that there is still a barrier to the security that traditional media provides, that is something that we need to be wary of and critical of. So while it's much better than it had been in the past, and, and these new opportunities in media um, are helping change the conversation and give more opportunities and see more. A diversity of faces and, and um, a diversity of opinions and talents. Yeah. I think it's it's incumbent on the sort of legacy media or those that have the levers of power to continue to be critical because it's still not enough. They're still perpetuating to a certain extent the same practices that have excluded people for so long.
0: Thanks, Dan. Um, Listen, we're we're getting the comments to light up and we're about 10 to the hour. So Jess, I'm going to let you come in with your question. Maybe just before Jess, I know Ben, you had a specific question on this. Maybe keep it bright and tight. Go ahead, Ben, and then we'll get to you, Jess.
2: Yeah, I was just wondering what you were thinking about the NWHL being on sort of a non-mainstream media, broadcasting their games on Twitch, uh, which is different and
1: it's sort of a create your own opportunities thing, sort of like the gist, but it's not mainstream media and just your thoughts on that uh it's a wonderfully um you know entrepreneurial creative approach and i think it it might work out work very well i've read some things about just the the target audience um for the nwhl and and how twitch obviously is a platform that um, has so many young users and and so many users that are paying attention to it so uh, i haven't seen any information on the ratings so far i'd be really curious to see how what the engagement is like um my colleague scott wheeler was just talking how well done the whole production was using that platform. And so I think that that is a great example of, of how a league like that can circumvent uh, the traditional properties like Sportsnet. Um, But I mean, just to reiterate, that we're also seeing companies like Sportsnet start to um, discuss uh, the games more. And I think that's a positive thing too. I know on the weekend they were talking about sort of results in the NHL. So, I mean, that stuff is all positive as well, but I think that that is one of the ways that there's a way to sort of disrupt the system and create opportunities to reach an audience that you don't you wouldn't be able to do because you don't have necessarily the immediate ratings that a sports net or tsn requires to be able to justify using that airtime which is a serious problem with the sport media you know whether that's through twitch or, or youtube those are great potential platforms for for uh, a burgeoning um, league to utilize
0: yes uh, let's head it over to you you had a question
3: okay yeah i have a question i'm not sure how much insight you have into this dan but i'm Curious to hear if you have any and what your angle would be on what you think would need to happen for female Paralympic athletes to be heard from and seen more um, on a more uh, mainstream level. And not only as athletes, but also as journalists that Mm -hmm. have physical limitations or other limitations, what do you think needs to be done in order for there to be more visibility?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. the reality is, uh, as a journalist, I just think about myself and what I can do. I need to be thinking about how I, what stories I'm not paying attention to that are exceptional stories. Um, and my goal as a writer um, has always been just to tell stories that I think are 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 compelling um, and inspiring, or interesting, or important to tell. Um, the challenge sometimes can be with finding the audience for those stories, and then there's the issue of making sure that um, those stories are, are going to be worth the, and I, I hate to be callous about it's sort of worth the amount of uh, time and effort put into it in return for clicks or, you know, stuff that online, that kind of stuff, which I, I hate that part of this whole industry because the, the reality should be, we should, we should go out and just find the best stories possible. Um, I think seeking out stories like that and finding um ways to tell them in a compelling manner is, is is sort of incumbent on journalists like myself and editors to to be searching for and for platforms to make space for those stories is key it, it, we can't just be talking about the raptors game we can't just be talking about the leafs we have to be talking about the wide range of athletics and, and the great stories that come in and i think that to go back to sort of something i hinted at before that like we benefit from this as well the great stories Engage an audience, but they have to be given the opportunity to reach an audience for people to know about them. Um, So, for us to just ignore them, because, like, it's it's for me to say, as as I said a second ago, oh, well, you know, the issue is is clicks and whether people will read them or not. Really, what should happen is we should go out and take risks, quote unquote, risks, to write stories that aren't necessarily automatic. 100,000 clicks and, and doing incredibly well, but are just really good stories that can connect with people and then get passed around and, and grow. And even if you, you don't have that sort of one-dimensional perspective on the success of a story, there's still value in telling that story. And I, and I, I know that we, we do many of the stories uh, at The Athletic. I've been able to do several stories, not necessarily speaking about women's athletics. I mean, and, 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 people, and Olympians with disabilities, I mean, this is something that is an area where absolutely people are being ignored and, and need to have more opportunities to be um, to be written about. So I need to think about a lot more and, and challenge myself on, uh, and, and we need to be asking uh, questions about why certain people aren't being represented.
0: Oh, wonderful answer, Dan. And just before we get to the rapid fire segment, Spencer has a question about relationship building and connecting with your interviewee. Um, please go ahead, Spencer. Mm-hmm
1: hi Dan uh first of all thank you for taking time to speak with us tonight on these topics my question is having written several books and long-form pieces involving athletes coaches and other individuals in sports how important is it to gain trust with your interview subjects also what techniques do you use to connect with the people that you interview and get them comfortable in order to engage and open up i think the starting point has to be the kind of story that you're working on and, and what level of engagement with the subject is needed. You know, if I'm writing a story about the NHL trying to get back from the pandemic and playing. I mean, I, those are set up interviews. I don't really create a huge uh, connection, but I'm writing an in-depth feature or a book about with somebody or about somebody. I need to get as, as close to that person's heart as I possibly can in terms of them feeling like they can tell me their story. And, and so that's something that I, I work really hard at being able to do um, by taking my time to engage them um, in a respectful way that, to show what my uh, intent is and, and how I would approach a story and to create you know, some sense of connection. Um, and then I'm thinking of a story when I'm writing about somebody who's revealing something and for the first time getting sort of, they're trusting me to tell that story well. I need to create that empathy right away. So, like, there's several examples of just stories I've written. I wrote one about four maple leaves who suffer from severe alcoholism and both died. And you know, getting in touch with Damoloni and Gritarian's family uh, was imperative to telling that story well. And I, I'm also asked them to trust me with a very painful story. And so I need to sit down with them and let them know as much about me and as much about what I want to do as I possibly can to gain their trust. And that's just something that I think. Over, you know, experience of, of just conversations and and time, um, you kind of get a feel for, which is something that I think you know maybe early on I was much more um, nervous about it and a little more um, awkward and not not really as as effective at it. But now uh, it's something I'm much more comfortable with and and sort of know the rhythm of sending an email and making a phone call and setting up a, a conversation over coffee and and also not to get too into the weeds on this, but thinking about where a conversation is going. So. When I'm sitting down with someone and having a conversation for several hours I know when my line of questioning is digging a little too far at the moment and when I need to back off that doesn't mean I'm going to stop digging and get that information I'm still coming to this story as a journalist with the job and whether that's ugly or wonderful or whatever it is I'm not I'm coming in to tell the story as honestly as I am capable of telling it so when I'm having a conversation about something that's a little bit difficult or and I can tell that the person I'm speaking to. Is it uncomfortable or is a little bit um, steps back? I have to divert the conversation and make sure I keep moving and then circle back to that at a different time. And, and, and my conversations for most of my articles end up being hours long. So it's helpful in that sense by having the time. And I'm very grateful that at The Athletic and previously at Sports that I've been given a, a space to write long form stories, which along with having more space to actually write the story on the website or in the magazine or in a book, I have more time to do what needs to be done to get the information to tell that story well. Um, so yeah, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a an art that I think you just sort of learn with the experience. But I think thinking about how am I presenting myself, am I being empathetic, and and am I um, being aware of, of the conversations that I'm having and how they're making people feel is probably the toolkit to gaining that kind of trust.
0: So I really appreciate you, you asking that question, because so much of what we were talking about were about issues, and then I think, Dan, you just very eloquently talked a little bit about the art of the work that you do, and somehow found an incredible way to fit that in, and one of the things that I really liked was this idea that when you're sharing asking somebody to share everything about themselves for a story, sharing part of yourself and showing some vulnerability and some empathy, I think is a part of endearment, no question. So I really appreciate you sharing that with us because that ability to open yourself up will open others to you. So we're gonna quickly go to rapid fire. Dan, this is like one word answers. I don't know if you're up for it. Are you up for it All right, I'm just. I'm I'm ready. As long
1: as my uh, my Wi-Fi works, I'm up for it. I think we're good. Yeah,
0: exactly. I'll (laughs) I'll I'll speak slowly. Make sure you catch everything. Listen, we just want to get to know (laughs) behind you. We know you're an author. And just before we throw it back to Joe, here's a couple questions. Your favorite author?
1: Oh gosh, that's a really tough question. Oh man, Um, my favorite author. I'm not quick with I'm not quick with answers. That's really tough. I would say my favorite novelist is Graham Greene. So I'll just go with that and leave it. I love Graham Greene.
0: Great great, take it out. The most influential piece of nonfiction that you've read in your life.
1: Oh, goodness. most influential piece of nonfiction that I've read in my life oh.
0: Oh,
1: I mean I've, I, that's what I read so much of it. and I would say I'll say um, Tim O'Brien's the Things that they, the things they Carried um, is a book I've read several times. It's about the Vietnam War. and I think that the the storytelling in it um, is something that just completely you know, captivated me, although, I believe part of that book might be fictionalized. Anyway, that's something that came to my mind. So, so Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried is something everybody should read.
0: Thanks. And I'll let that go if there's a little fiction in there. Okay. Uh, What's your (laughs) favorite, favorite sports book all time, fiction or nonfiction?
1: Uh, It's Open uh, by Andre Agassi. uh, Mm -hmm. is my favorite sports book for sure. I mean, it's, it's a sort of the model uh, in which I've taken through the, the, the books that I've written with author, with uh, with athletes, um, that book was was written with J.M. Um, Moringer, who's an incredible sports journalist and wrote a bunch of things. He's not even on the book, but he's the one who wrote it with Agassi. And it's a, in terms of cracking open an athlete's mind and getting into the um, the substance of what's there, that, that book does it better than any book has, in my opinion.
0: It's just curious, who was your favorite player growing up? It was
1: Patrick Wall when I was young, because I was a goalie. So Patrick Wall was my um I, I idolized him
0: Hey, nice um hey if you could have a ticket in your hand to see any game tomorrow if you could dream it you could go what would you go see what are you missing the most oh that's a good question
1: yeah. um these are harder than the other questions you were <laughs> asking me before uh <laughs> any event that i could go and see um right now i, I would that's a great question um you know what? I, I just because I want to go, I, I would probably want to go to Wimbledon and and sit in Wimbledon and watch uh, watch tennis. Um, even though I don't cover tennis very much, I've been to most other events and to me that seems like one of the most intimate experiences, and I've always really wanted to do so. So I'm going to say Wimbledon.
0: You know Maddie D said that was his answer, and it was mine too. so there you go. Two, two Dans and a Maddie okay,
1: go. okay, good.
0: uh, What story, singularly, (laughs) Dan, are you most proud of in your career?
1: Hmm. That's a great question. Um, I think that the story that I'm currently most proud of um, is the story I wrote about Whale Cove, Nunavut, um, that I wrote several years ago when I was at Sportsnet, when I was able to travel to to Whale Cove, a small community in the Arctic, and, and travel with a group of boys on their first road trip. Um, which wasn't a road trip. It was a, a flight and a train ride. And I think I actually spoke to it about it in, in your class, Dan, for it's, it's a story to me that, that, that allowed me to look at what, why we do what we do when we, when we play sports and when we're in a community with people. And it allowed me to understand or learn about uh, a community that, that I don't know anything about and had the opportunity to sort of um, be part of that and be welcomed in um, to this new community in, in, uh, in our wonderful North. So that's the one that I just cherish as an experience that I'll never forget. Um, so I'm, I'm really, I'm just grateful to have had the opportunity. I think that's the, why I'll I'll never forget that story. So that's why I have to say that one. You
0: know, I love it. We're all leaving here with a a great reading list to take with us. So last question for (laughs) you, it's a two-parter and I'm holding you to this, Dan, five words or less. Okay. So if you, or you could do a haiku, but really five words is what we're looking for here. What is the single most rewarding part of the work you do as a teacher? Hmm. I think, I think
1: it's seeing the work of my students afterwards and hearing from them saying, um, you're hearing back saying, you know, I'm doing this now. And I, I learned this in your class and just seeing them be excited about the industry. So, I mean, I, I'm always happy when I, when I read a story and I, and I see someone sort of connected with the ideas that we're talking about and they're, um, they're engaging in the, in the class. I mean, that, that always light lights me up, but then to see. Um, students go on and to be able to use what we've talked about and to be able to, you know, to reach back and say, hey, you know, you had an impact on me in some ways. It's just really meaningful. And I think any educator would sort of uh, know that feeling. It's, it's hard not to, to smile when you read that. And I've had professors back from when I was in university studying um, Jane Austen in uh, in romantic literature. And I, that professor, whenever he comes to Toronto, I still have a beer with even though we don't I, I don't work in that space at all, um, I don't think about Jane Austen very often but we had a connection because he was such a, a good teacher and, and I think that I the lessons I learned in that class I have carried forward in many ways in what I've written. so it's hearing from from old students I think that that makes it all worthwhile.
0: So again in in five words or less <laughs> and I joke because it's amazing I could only imagine that, being your did editor. Did you say five words or less? I did you know and I, yeah, I mean I'm imagine. a long-form
1: writer and I write books.
0: I was going to say, like, what if I'm your editor? Give me a thousand words on this, like 20,000 words later. You're, well, you're, you're, you're. But, you know, I joke. That's it, why amazing. I
1: hate Twitter. I mean, I can't.
0: <laughs> and it's amazing. I just
1: ignored it. I just, I just take what I he- I want to hear and That's I, right. I do you that. Just
0: go with it. So my last question, <laughs> then, two-parter, five words yeah. or less if you can, because we got to get to Joe as well. Okay. The single most rewarding part of being a father.
1: Wow. Well, <laughs> okay. Um, his smile.
0: That's it. Hey, that that's says you. it. That says it. All. Five <laughs> words or less. His smile. I think that's that says it all. Listen, um, that is your rapid fire, Dan. I I agree. Sometimes those questions are the real tough ones. Thanks for giving us that insight into your into your life. And uh, wonderful. So we're going to go back to Joe. He'd like to talk to you a little bit about a very proud accomplishment. In addition to being a dad, you also. <laughs> have a new book coming out talking about fathers and sons. Joe, please take it away.
2: Thanks, Dan. Yeah, that's a nice segue um, about you being a father this year. And your son's, name is it Oliver?
1: Yes, it's Oliver, yeah.
2: Okay, yeah. And you and your your wife are a very busy couple. I mean, I don't know if most people know, but your wife is an accomplished journalist as well. Um, She works uh, doing a podcast at CBC. You're both extremely busy, both big award winners, and now having a baby this year in the middle of a pandemic. Um, I can only imagine, I think that's a book in there somewhere. But I want you to just finish up, we want to finish the show and we're running over, but it's been such a great conversation, just to finish on your new book that's coming out. I mean, it's kind of of coincidence that today you started posting on social media about your new book. Tell us a little bit about this and the genesis of that, because it's about fathers and sons and you
1: became a father yourself this year. Yeah, thanks for asking. It's a book that I've been working on for for several years now. Basically, my father passed away uh, several years ago, uh, quite suddenly uh, from a stroke when I was in the middle of actually writing one of my books, my book uh, biography of Pat Quinn. Um, And it was in the middle of sort of being in the depths of only thinking about writing and working 12-hour days and kind of in the chaos that happens in your life when you're working on a tight deadline for a book. Um, And then this very um, life-changing thing happened that threw me off course the book came about through the same publishers uh, you know they they were interested in the story that I had to tell and, and I think the story I had to tell was something that I've been figuring out over the last three years even though the book itself takes place in the year after my father's death um, but I went through what I've come to realize was a was a, a form of depression a period of just immense grief and, and difficulty in which sort of nothing that I did um, really seem to matter anymore make any make make much sense um, without my dad who I was incredibly close with um, being there so over the year of his death I renovated my family basement and just some backstory quick my, my father was a, a carpenter and I worked in construction his, his whole life and so was just one of those people that can do absolutely everything with a tool like literally just fix anything and knew what he was doing and I'm um, a bumbling moron who just writes things so I had no ability at all when it came to how to use my hands to fix things so that story ends up being um, the narrative in which I explore a lot of the things that I think were left unsaid with me and my father and explores I think a lot of the ways that we look to our relationship with our parents or those who raised us um, or who didn't raise us, but maybe should have, um, as blueprints for uh, the lives that that we live. And 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 speaking to my 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 father's friends when he was a teenager, and um, people that I know who he influenced in a, in a way that he helped out, um, that I wasn't really entirely sure. I started taking a journalistic stance to that alongside of this this narrative that I was doing. I think I was able to learn. I think I was able to gain a bit of the connection that I felt was disrupted by his his, his early death. And then also um, think to get a bigger picture about how we sort of frame our lives um, based on the way we understand uh, what what it means to be whatever it is we think we ought to be. Um, And my son's birth in May of last year uh, created an ending, uh, and he thankfully um, is the the final chapter of the book, uh, which I was really grateful to get in. And I think part of the reason it was taking me so long to get it done is that I wasn't ready to finish it, um, and and he gave me a reason to. So it comes out this May just right before Oliver's first birthday. Uh, and so it's been, it's been a real um, honor to, for, to have the opportunity to do. And it's called Measuring Up, right? Yes, it's called Measuring Up, uh, memoir of Fathers and Sons. And this week it's on 25% off for the next week uh, because of uh, promotion through Indigo, which is, uh, which is nice of them to do.
2: Okay, well, you know I'll be, I'll be buying one of those copies. You're, I've always been a big fan of your writing. Um, I think we're incredibly lucky to have you on the Sport Media faculty, Uh, the students are I think all the better for it and I know that the department is as well. Um, I just want to thank you very much Dan for taking out the time to talk with us when we know how busy you are working full time at The Athletic, new baby, putting out these books and you took some time to talk to us and uh, especially with the amount of students here as well. I'm sure they've enjoyed the talk. Um, And from all of us, me, Coach Dan, Chelsea, Axel, um, Prof Walls, Laura Walzak, who wasn't able to be here tonight, but all of us and the students, thanks very much. Um, This has been Sport Talks with Sport Profs. Good night.